Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about television debuts. It occurs to me that I've talked about television only a relatively few times in the past on inappropriate conversations. Even when I'm looking at nostalgia shows, like this particular one will be, and a lot of them have been critical. The one that comes immediately to mind was looking at sort of reality television and almost talking about television in the modern age is becoming a bit of a lost art. But I don't want to look at television in the modern age. I'm going to go back almost 45 years and look at television from the perspective of the 1972-73 TV season. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why first, and then get into references to some something like 20 shows, meaning I won't spend a ton of time on each one. But I do want to kind of mention specific programs. And this was inspired uh, on many fronts, but you know, primarily here. The reason I decided to do it now and to lighten the load a little bit and do a bit of a nostalgia program is that 2016 is an election year and it seems inevitable that between now and the end of the year, things are going to get serious. So this is a, a willful effort on my part to sort of, to sort of lighten things up. And I'm taking a cue from a podcast called Cosmic Potato, the superfan talk podcast. Sean Ray from Alabama uh, had a and a few episodes that he did with Rick Tatro from uh, the Starbase 66 podcast talking about Saturday morning cartoons. And the one that really caught my ear was the one that was uh, episode 26, the cartoons of the 60s and the 70s, in part because they spent time talking about Johnny Quest, but also because they talked a little bit about a couple of things that really triggered this particular inappropriate conversation. One was a television show that would come on late August, early September each year, at least back in that time each year, uh, previewing all of the new things that were going to come out. There was sort of a second week of September unveiling of the new season and the major networks, because back then it really was just ABC, NBC, CBS, and PBS. Uh, for the most part. And they would unveil a new season with all the shows pretty much starting at the same time to where you'd get to a Monday night and starting from that point on, primetime would be completely different. Um, the reruns from the summertime would be over, but some of those shows would also be dead and done as a result of it. So September marked the beginning of a new television series. It marked the moment where debuts were happening. And that made me think of TV Guide, which I'll get to in just a minute, but the other connection point for me was Johnny Quest. Uh, Rick mentioned Johnny Quest as uh, maybe even his first show that he wanted to mention, the number one show he wanted to name drop in an episode discussing Saturday morning cartoons. Because, let's be honest, in 1972-73, I would have been a little kid, and my first focus when looking at a the new TV season would have been Saturday morning. And uh, Johnny Quest was the centerpiece of every single one of those new seasons, which is ironic because the cartoon came out right around the year I was born, had one season and uh, one season in primetime and, and it had been pretty much on Saturday morning reruns for going back as far as I could possibly remember. But all the same, you'd get that new um, TV guide magazine 
where it would be the one with the debuts of all the new shows and kind of laying out what the new season would be, get it at least a week, maybe even a couple of weeks before that change would occur. So you'd have a chance to, to read up and decide which programs you wanted to pay attention to. And for me, the Saturday lineup was the most important because Saturday morning, which shows were going to be new was interesting, but where were they going to put the reruns? Because every year I still wanted to watch Johnny Quest. And uh, after Star Trek, the animated series came out uh, a little bit later than in the 70s. I'd want to see when those were going to be showing as well. Scooby-Doo as well. So the Saturday morning lineup was all about first figuring out when the first one of these rerun shows were going to be on. Was it going to be waking up to Looney Tune cartoons, waking up to Johnny Quest, waking up to Scooby-Doo? What was it going to be? And then how would that lay out the Saturday morning cartoon watching? I remember a story, and I've probably shared it before on Inappropriate Conversations, but if so, it's been years, of when I was uh, you know, a parent for the first time. And so you're going through all those sort of just immediate transformations of dealing with um, having a small kid in the house. And when that kid gets old enough to sort of walk around and be mobile and um, speak and begin making requests and or demands of certain things like certain music, certain food, one of the things that occurred to me was that I didn't have a lot of Johnny Quest available to me. This was years before I would buy the DVD box set that I have today, and I would encourage anyone to track that down if you're interested in Johnny Quest as a cartoon, because there is a way to get every episode of the original, uh, entire original run of the show, that first season, so to speak, in one collection. It's a very good collection. But back then, uh, the only way that I could try to secure a way of getting my daughter to see these things, and later my son, would be to record them off of television. And she must have been four years old, three or four years old, somewhere in there, when I noticed that either TNT or TBS, one of the Atlanta-based uh, television superstations, was showing Johnny Quest reruns, uh, the originals, plus some of the ones the like the new Johnny Quest, were showing every morning at like 6 or 6.30 a.m. Some kind of crazy time where... If I was awake at that hour, I was awake because I was busy. I was preparing my for work or preparing for church. It wasn't a time that I could... I certainly wouldn't wake up my daughter if she wasn't awake and sit her down and watch the show. But I put it in VHS tape and set it to timer record and would basically, over the course of a few weeks, just timer record every single episode of Johnny Quest. And then uh, that night, when I got home from work, rewind it, see if it was one I'd already recorded. If uh, If not, keep it. If yes, rewind back to the beginning and Set the timer to start there, and over the course of several weeks, I ended up putting two uh, SLP mode six-and-a-half-hour VHS tapes together with not all, but a lot of these Johnny Quest episodes. As I'd sort of hoped would happen, my daughter didn't just like them, she loved them. And from there, I quickly realized that unlike my experience as a kid, where you'd get one, maybe two at the most, Johnny Quest episodes a week, and you'd have to make sure that you were... You were on the ball. You might even set an alarm for yourself or something on a Saturday morning to make sure that you didn't sleep through Johnny Quest, because when it was done, it was done. Gilligan's Island and Star Trek might be showing every single day after school, uh, rerunning so much that you could actually quote the dialogue as the episodes were rolling by, but the same couldn't be said generally for Johnny Quest. So at one point, I realized that my daughter was probably sitting for two, three hours at a time, or seemed, at least it seemed like there was three or four episodes going by at a time. And I finally said, hey, we've got to stop this. You've got to space them out. Because first off, that's too much television in one sitting. Second off, there's not that many episodes. So don't uh, don't binge them all at once. 
And she just couldn't understand that because after all, there was a videotape and the videotape had lots of episodes and therefore she should be able to watch the videotape through and through. And I, I don't know if she would have watched six and a half hours end to end without parental supervision, but the thought might have crossed her mind. So I pulled her aside and said, you know what? You don't know how lucky you have it. That first off, I'm glad that I've made these recordings of television for you and I'm glad that you can watch them and I'm glad that the show that I loved as a kid is being handed down to the next generation. But said, when I was growing up, there weren't any VCRs and there weren't any, you know, cable television superstations. If you wanted to watch Johnny Quest, you had to figure out when it was showing. It was only showing on Saturday morning. It was often showing pretty early on Saturday morning. And if you slept through it, you just missed it. My daughter looked at me as if I might have been kidding and said, no. And I think later probably double-checked with her mom to see if I was just trying to pull some elaborate prank on her. It was hard for her in this modern age to conceive of a time before there were either uh, back then VHS recording devices or now DVR recording devices. And even the notion of just going to your DVR and pushing a couple of buttons and say, hey, hey, record every episode of Supergirl next year. I might try to watch that. Very simple to do now. Uh, required a daily amount of planning and effort back then to accomplish. But Johnny Quest was kind of the centerpiece of that. And I remember uh, probably the number one priority going to the TV Guide every year was grabbing it and looking for Saturday morning and finding out when Johnny Quest was going to be when the new season started to roll. The other inspiration I guess I would refer to is I went looking for what the, uh, kind of remind myself of 1972-73. This is the year I've chosen, and I've chosen it for a very specific reason. But we'll get to those reasons in a minute. As I was looking at it, uh, I, I went and found, like, kind of what did the TV preview look like that year? What was that that special issue, the fall preview? And interestingly, the TV Guide cover is just not all that interesting for that particular year. It just says the word fall preview over and over again in a bunch of different colors. But I found a blogger out there and interestingly sharing some of my perspective at kind of a, a macro level, but at a micro level, we have a very different point of view about things. The blog is called I Am a Child of Television. So childoftv.blogspot.com. The blogger is a man from Saskatchewan, Canada named Brent McKee. He writes in his blog uh, for this particular issue, an April 2009 blog entry, 1972, tvguidefallpreview.html, uh, says this, There are those who say that 1939 was Hollywood's greatest year, or its golden year. I know, I bought the book, Hollywood's Golden Year, 1939. It's not a thesis that I'm entirely willing to accept, because I feel it is my belief that there have been other years, before and after 1939, when Hollywood achieved artistic and commercial high points. Similarly, I don't wish to suggest that any given year was TV's golden year, but I would suggest that if someone were to come up with a list of the greatest television seasons, 1972-73 would be very near the top. Even some of the failures were in their own way brilliant. With the possible exception of NBC, 1972 was a hell of a good year for just about everyone, and in particular, the viewers. So he and I would be on the same page in terms of looking at 1972. The only difference between my perspective and McKee's perspective is that I would actually single out NBC for having a singularly good year. And maybe in light of the even some of the failures were in their own way brilliant, NBC can count themselves 
uh, on that list pretty prominently. But the main reason I wanted to talk about this particular show and focus on nostalgia was to deal with TV debuts. Because the concept of debuting a new TV show has really changed. And I think we kind of know this. Maybe a couple of years ago, we were sitting right at that crossroads and it might have been easy to not notice that it was happening. But now it is very much a reality that that first two weeks of September is not the nationwide collective debut of new TV shows. In fact, for quite some time, new television shows, both on pay cable show, the networks like HBO and Showtime, but also other cable networks like you know, AMC and FX, have been coming out sort of on their own schedule, almost coming out when they're ready. And many of those were are simply too good to be ignored. I don't recall, for example, whether there was some you know particular moment in the September calendar where brand new seasons of the network shows coordinated with a brand new season of something like Breaking Bad or Dexter. Seems like these things now have their own sort of timing, if you will. And Netflix has recently changed the game completely. And by recently, I mean it's been over the course of a couple of years now, but... Shows like House of Cards and Orange is the New Black come out kind of on their own speed and come out with an entire season all at once. And, and so you're not just getting the beginning of a new series and you watch the first few episodes to see if it's going to succeed. Uh, is it going to make the, the network money? Is it going to last in its time slot? Um, are they even going to show all the initial episodes they filmed before even getting permission to film more episodes? No, Netflix has changed the game with a confidence, is I guess the way you'd word it? of saying, this is a new series coming out. Maybe a season only has a dozen or so episodes instead of 24 or 25, you know, whatever it used to be back in the 70s. But that entire season is going to come out in its entirety all at once. Uh, it's going to succeed or fail uh, on a, se- a season-long basis, if you will. So the idea of a debut is completely different. But I can remember as a kid trying to figure out even how to pronounce this strange word. Was it debut? Was it debut? Was it debut? How would you pronounce this? And that was the most exciting part on the primetime side of the ledger. Because again, as a kid, I wasn't all that, wasn't that much interested in the new shows Saturday morning. The new shows Saturday morning would have to prove themselves. And if one of them did, then in a couple of years, I'd be looking for it as a rerun on the regular schedule. Because I kind of understood that a lot of my favorite cartoons were made way before I was born. Uh, everything Looney Tunes, pretty much. The uh, Johnny Quest stuff, right around, made before I was born, broadcast around the time I was born. Uh, even Pink Panther, they made while I was you know, very young. Uh, Underdog, I had no concept of how old it was. It seemed probably older than it really was, right? But I don't want to focus on Saturday morning. Really, what I want to do is spend time, uh, just in many of the same ways that um, Brent McKee did, looking at 1972-73 as a season. And so let me call out right up front what those debuts were. And this isn't a comprehensive list, mind you, but some of these shows I want to talk about and some of these shows I'm not going to talk about much because I don't think there's any reason to. Uh, I'll drop a name, and if I don't revisit it, it's because, well, everybody already knows kind of all about them. Shows like uh, The Price is Right, for example, Uh, Maud, The Waltons. Uh, Don't need to go into much detail about those shows. But among the other debuts in, the, in this 1972 starting point, Circle of Fear, Search, Sanford and Son, Emergency, The Rookies, The Joker's Wild, another one of those game shows, Fat Albert was a debut Saturday morning cartoon, Kung Fu, MASH, MASH debuted at this point in time, 
Streets of San Francisco, and what I might call the first iteration of the Bob Newhart show. And again, not a comprehensive list, but there's just a ton of debut programs that came out and... Brent McKee's focus in his blog was how well did they linger, meaning uh, if you were CBS and you could count to your credit things like MASH, then you did extraordinarily well in this year. But if you were NBC and you had a couple of shows start like Search and Circle of Fear that only lasted one season, maybe that's an indication of failure. But here's why I don't think that's true. I don't think it's an indication of failure because I have bought, just in the last few years, multi-disc box sets of the one and only season of Search on NBC and the one and only season of Circle of Fear on NBC. And I probably have mentioned these shows in one way or another in the past. This episode, being a nostalgia episode, is going to harken back to some past inappropriate conversations. And the one that it's going to kind of mirror the most, if anybody was curious enough to go back and take a look at the last time I covered some of this same ground might be January 2011, Inappropriate Conversations 42. I call it the morning after for classic made-for-TV movies, and it really surprises me that a lot of those made-for-TV movies could be focused into just this one season. I didn't do it that way. I talked about more made-for-television films uh, and the made-for-television series of films, the ABC Movie of the Week concept, in that particular episode, because some of my favorites don't fall right inside this one season of television, but I am surprised at how many did. And before I get into some specifics on certain shows, a couple things I want to do. Um, one is say that as I'm name-dropping here, again, CBS, I would agree they deserve a ton of credit just for MASH alone, but I'm only going to name-drop four CBS shows with any any degree of conversation about them. And most of them are going to be uh, television movies that came out during the 72-73 season. For ABC, I'll name drop eight. And for NBC, I'll name drop nine. So while McKee may feel that NBC uh, was the kind of the loser, the odd man out and the success of the 1972 TV season, I would say that for me anyway, they were one of the big winners. But the other thing I wanted to do was talk about the TV movie, and we're going to get to that here in just a bit, but how many of these debuts started off as made-for-television movies where the pilot was shot at a greater length, shown on television, and perhaps even the viewership, the results, the critical assessments of those pilots had a lot to do with them becoming TV shows themselves. Emergency is one that comes to mind. As a television series, it was a mid-season replacement starting in January for NBC, But first, it was a made-for-TV movie. The Rookies, an ABC show, came out originally as a made-for-TV movie, as did Kung Fu, and uh, later on, The Streets of San Francisco, um, all of those part of the ABC Movie of the Week series, but the Movie of the Week ended up successfully spinning off into a regular series. So those movies were either shown the season before or the spring before, or were actually introduced with the movie of the week first, or the the longer pilot episode, and then from there carried forth with the, in most of these examples, hour-long sort of television dramas, I guess is how you would describe them. So while I don't want to dwell probably much on sitcoms, most of the ones I want to pull out and talk about in some greater detail were the hour-long shows. Which I guess tells you a little bit about me, that as a kid... Um, Maybe I was even this serious all the way back in the early 70s. I'm not sure. I was always taken by the adventure. 
so I didn't mind a police procedural, and the rookies and emergency would both qualify under that umbrella. The rookies was uh, a police procedural about police officers in their first year <laughs> on the job, and then uh, later, later, emergency would come, and emergency was more of uh, firefighters and uh, ambulance, emergency medical technician, doctors and nurses in the hospital, that sort of thing. And then Kung Fu was, of course, a different animal altogether, perhaps to some degree falling along maybe the private eye genre, where you've got a bit of a lone ranger, not necessarily solving crimes, but sometimes solving crimes, or certainly resolving problems. And that would have been still part of the procedural idea, I suppose, but really more focused on the individual and the individual personality. It always amused me that the focus um, using martial arts was all about uh, nonviolence and self-control. And yet there almost always would be a situation every single week where the concept of nonviolence would get pushed to the point where violence was necessary, if only, if only in self-defense. So the two box sets that I'm referring to, and box sets that I'm still working my way through every episode, because, again, back then a season of television was was more than 20 episodes. These, of course, 20 hour long, meaning probably 48 minutes uh, each, maybe even more. Now an hour long TV episode is probably 44 or 43 minutes, but uh, that's just the commercialization of, of television as it stands. One was called Search. And it was originally a made-for-TV uh, movie called Probe. But basically, Probe Search, same exact concept and setup, just what do you call the show versus what did they call the movie. And you've got a set of uh, high-tech private detectives who uh, have a command and control center that you know I think probably intentionally calls to mind the, uh, the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, I guess, for want of a better word. You've got lots of computers, lots of teleconnectivity. The head of that uh, detective agency, this international detective agency, has the ability uh, across the globe um, using what, would, what at the time would have been cutting-edge satellite technology to speak into the earpiece of a detective who, again, might be somewhere in the Middle East or somewhere in Europe. And also, through the use of small camera devices, see some of what that detective is actually seeing. So that if the detective is in a foreign country and gets asked a question in a strange dialect of that country's language, they can use the computers in California to call up exactly how to give the proper response in the right language. So sort of a Mission Impossible meets a private detective uh, for hire kind of a firm situation, often with life or death um, struggles involved. And the other thing that was interesting about Search was that rather than having a single cast, now Burgess Meredith was a fixture in every episode, but the main private detectives, the man on the street, if you will, was three or more different rotating stars. So if you didn't really like Hugh O'Brien or Doug McClure or... Um, you know, Tony Franciosa or whoever the other detective was, week to week you could have some confidence that maybe the next week, if you were tired of this guy, there'd be a different guy. Because it wasn't just that there was a season where they had a whole uh, set of weeks in a row, a, a block of one main private detective, and then they'd switch to the other. They literally mixed them up, episode in and episode out. And I stumbled across Search. This wasn't a situation where I would have pulled out the TV guide and looked for new shows and put my finger on that one and said, that one's going to feel the most like Star Trek, which is a show that I loved. Uh, no, instead, it was a little bit more like me uh, finding that particular uh, episode by chancing across it, but seeing the connections and really liking it. 
you know, the other show that inspired, the other podcast that inspired this particular topic is Treks and Sci-Fi. And Treks and Sci-Fi also did a Johnny Quest episode. And that Johnny Quest episode was uh, number 565, uh, hosted by Mark Daniels, uh, who lists his location as being the, the great Pacific Northwest. But sometime more recently than that, uh, than that episode in December of 2015, uh, Rico himself did a show focusing on 1977 as a year, and particularly a year in movies. And I think you can imagine that if you were doing a sci-fi podcast that wanted to pick a year out of the 70s to focus on, 1977 is going to do you pretty well. Uh, it's going to have Star Wars in it and Alien and, and several other things that would be really crucial moments in the history of sci-fi. But I like the way he kind of walked through that year as he went. So when we get to the TV movies portion of this nostalgia show, that's what I'm going to do. But before I get to TV movies, I want to talk about Circle of Fear. That's the other box that I bought. It was originally had episodes aired under the name Ghost Story. Halfway through the season, they, they dropped the main host who was introducing the episodes, not unlike Rod Serling used to do for the Twilight Zone and later Night Gallery. But... They changed the name from uh, Ghost Story to Circle of Fear. I think that's always a sign of trouble when a uh, new show gets a name change in its first season. Probably not as bad as the death knell of the mid-season replacement, but certainly right up there with having your time slot shifting around as if the network is scrambling to find a place to put you where you might be able to find an audience. Circle of Fear, I guess you could view that as being a dead genre, we don't see much of this anymore. But this notion of an anthology horror TV series, you know, from my perspective, well, it wasn't a total wash. Because, to me, the reason you can point to it as a success is you would end up with later series, like the Friday the 13th sh- uh, series, that would leverage the same kind of idea. So coming with this unique idea, different format every week, different plot line, different cast of characters, different actors, uh, calling back to Night Gallery and before to some degree... Not just Twilight Zone, but also some of those teleplay kind of ideas. So even though this one wasn't successful, I think you can draw a direct line between it and future made-for-TV horror anthology series. Here's what McKee says in his discussion about 1972 and the struggles that NBC was having. The problem was that of the new shows, only two stuck for NBC, and both of them needed major surgery to stay in the lineup. In addition to three series that started the season and ended their season in January 1973, one was uh, Rod Serling's Night Gallery. This was not a new show. It had been, uh, well, actually it was reaching the end of its run. By this point, Serling had essentially disavowed the series because his contributions were being ignored and his complaints to producer Jack Laird were essentially you know, not getting him anywhere. The situation with Bonanza was even worse, and very similar to what happened with Petticoat Junction, where key actors died, and the show sort of died with it. So, if at the end of this year, you lose Night Gallery as the predecessor horror episode of the week kind of anthology show, and Ghost Story slash Circle of Fear would both start and die, you can understand why it might be a while before there would be any sort of revival, any sort of attempt to do that again. And that attempt probably would never come from NBC again. Now, that's a little bit unfair, because NBC was managing their um, mystery movie franchise, where they had put together shows like Columbo and McLeod and McMillan and Wife, and they were adding to it in the 1972-73 series with new examples of the same, new rotating shows to put in that mystery movie 
kind of idea. Madigan was one, starring Richard Bur- uh, Widmark. Again, um, a 1968 theatrical film that he was now reprising the character into a TV series. And Banachek with George Papard as a insurance investigator. There'd be more than one insurance investigator show that would pop up. Back to McKee, just the last reference I'll make to his article. As for the rest of the NBC shows, Banyan, a 1930s period piece during Robert Forster as the title character, and, and 30s movie star Joan Blondell as the owner of a secretarial school that provides Banyan with office employees. That show ran 15 episodes. The other two NBC shows lasted a full season, but while Search, about a high-tech detective agency that constantly monitors its operatives, and the anthology Ghost Story, renamed Circle of Fear at the same time that it was that it dropped host Sebastian Cabot, they weren't popular enough to pick up. So again, if the standard is, did these new debut shows last and roll in to the next year and the next year and the next year? Well, the answer there is, well, probably no, not successful. But to me, they left a mark and they made an impression. And they are the probably the standout series of all the ones that I've mentioned where I actually have gone out, sought DVD, and now own DVD. So I'd like to tip a hat to Search and Circle of Fear, as in retrospect, looking backward in time, the, probably the two most important TV series of that year. And when I uh, would go back and look at uh, TV in the future, those are shows that I would be looking for in rerun, often showing up uh, Saturday afternoon television or Sunday afternoon television to the network that was trying to compete with the NFL or, frankly, just film network space and buy time. Because in the 1970s, competing with the NFL was often is not a losing venture. She's also very bold yes. and um, not afraid to back down. I mean, she stands up to Tarkin right. on the bridge of his ship yep, she and does. says some, something to the extent of, um, the more you tighten your grip, the more systems will slip through your fingers. He's like towering over oh, Vader yeah, and Tarkin she's not both. And she's, I think that was a nice choice, too. Not only is Carrie Fisher very smart. Uh-huh. and um, articulate, but she's small. So it's a yes. nice contrast to see this small woman be so independent and fierce, you yeah. know, standing up against something that's so much bigger than her. I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And when you're not listening to this glorious podcast... We would love to have you listen to ours, the Anomaly Podcast. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast dot com. <laughs> okay. As I shift my focus to the made-for-TV movies, which, remember, some of those made-for-TV movies were just an entry point for a series, a debut series, often enough. But as I shift my focus there, I want to spend less time looking at this from the perspective of the excellent Trex and Sci-Fi episode 565 on Johnny Quest that Mark Daniels hosted, and maybe more the look and feel of episode 590 of Trex and Sci-Fi for the year 1977. And in fact, what I really want to do is kind of walk through the year uh, on the made-for-TV front in the order that these shows would have rolled out and appeared and kind of talk to it from the perspective of what it was like to catch a movie. And later on, it would hit me that I might be watching a movie that I really enjoyed and that I thought was great. 
and that had perhaps sequel potential. And then as a kid, being a little confused that why did this show not turn into a regular ongoing TV series when the other ones seem to have done so? I've already mentioned shows like um, Emergency on NBC, The Rookies, and Kung Fu on ABC. But the first one I want to call out by itself was September, going to, again, ABC, and that same ABC Movie of the Week format for The Streets of San Francisco. This would be Carl Malden and uh, Michael Douglas and Robert Wagner and others in the in the TV movie, dealing with a veteran cop and his young college-educated partner. So you've got this street smart versus school smarts uh, investigating crimes, where you've got San Francisco as a city giving you excellent location options, and the interaction between Academy Award-winning actors, or at least eventually Academy Award-winning actors, and Carl Malden and Michael Douglas. Not a surprise that that was picked up. This would be an example of a pilot shot released as a made-for-TV movie, knowing all along it was going to be part of the regular series run, starting then in 1972. In October, Short Walk to Daylight uh, was an ABC movie of the week, and that one, uh, I remembered it wrong. I think I recall talking in episode 42 about maybe one of the things that attracted me to the movie Short Walk to Daylight that particular October of that year was that it was uh, it starred Carol Lindley. But the fact of the matter is, that show didn't star Carol Lindley. In fact, the Abby Lincoln might have been, or Brooke Bundy might have been the woman that I'm remembering from all that time ago. It's hard to say. It really was a star vehicle for James Brolin. And we've later seen that particular concept, if not even the screenplay, reshot uh, in a modern setting with Sylvester Stallone starring in the movie Daylight. It's a group of people trapped in a New York subway tunnel after an earthquake has more or less damaged the city and them trying to crawl their way out. It's a it's a trapped in a cave kind of a of a theme there. Those are ABC and ABC I think will probably dominate the movie of the week concept as we go through this. But the next one I want to mention, looking at the month of November, um, has a lot of CBS in it. Um, Gargoyles was a CBS movie, starred Cornell Wilde, released in November of that year. And I remember seeing it, being excited to see it and ultimately being disappointed by it. And ever since when I've seen it a couple of times, same thing. Uh, the wave of nostalgia ultimately dissipates into a little bit of disappointment as the show itself isn't all that strong. Um, there is this whole concept of gargoyles and the supernatural, and it's it's spooky and atmospheric. But in addition to just the baseline level of 1972 special effects aren't going to hold up, I'm not sure the plot held up all that well either. November of that year also brought an NBC made-for-TV movie, Frankenstein, The True Story. And I do remember being excited to see what I think was probably a uh, you know multi-night kind of two-parter, uh, four-hour or so in length, or at least in broadcast length. And good cast. Yeah, James Mason, uh, David McCollum, Michael Sarazen is uh, the Frankenstein monster. And trying to be a little bit more of a, of a literate version and maybe an accurate, I am taking a chance here, it's been a lot of years since I've seen it, of Mary Shelley's gothic horror story. The other one, and I barely remember this, I haven't seen it since the early 70s, but I remember liking it, in fact, I think I remember the entire family liking it, was an NBC sort of comedy caper, comedy mystery show called The Snoop Sisters. This came out in December, so we moved into the month of December. December is a tough time for 
anything new being introduced on TV, whether that's a new made-for-TV movie or a, a, a series debuting. That's why you see the mid-season replacements happening in January, February instead of December. Part of that is just the nature of how busy people get, and sometimes television gets squeezed out. But even then, on television, as a kid, thinking from that perspective, December TV was all about the Christmas shows. I wasn't really looking for a new uh, series or even a movie. I was waiting for the time when Rudolph Frosty and the Little Drummer Boy were going to be on TV because, like that weird conversation I had with my daughter, hard for a kid who's got a DVD box set of Rankin Bass shows to understand that there might have been only one time every year, one hour every year, where if you wanted to see Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, you had to be in front of the television at the beginning of that hour or you were going to miss it. So I remember the Snoop Sisters as being funny and being the one piece of December television in that particular year that wasn't about uh, Christmas, or at least wasn't uh, necessarily about Christmas. As I look back at the cast, it's interesting as well. Helen Hayes was the uh, the attraction, the, the reason I remember it, and, and pr- a pretty uh, old established you know career at that point. But you also had Paulette Goddard, who uh, I wouldn't have known at the time, but another very established actress. Uh, Jill Clayburgh, maybe more near to the beginning of her career. You know, a solid cast. In January, there, there's a couple of names I'll drop here. The Night Strangler was one of the uh, Night Stalker. This was the sequel to the 1971 made-for-TV movie The Night Stalker that would become the Kolchak TV series later on in 1974. So The Night Stalker was successful enough in the 71 season to produce a sequel here halfway through the 72 season in January of 1973, and then later would turn into a a TV show. Now, the one that I really want to kind of call out, the one that I think means the most to me from this period was Hunter. And I don't have much information on Hunter. I know that it starred John Vernon. Uh, Let me read read a quick blurb from Movies Made for Television, the telefeatures and miniseries of 1964 to 1984. In this pilot for a projected spy series, one that I suspect never happened, the man who gave us Mission Impossible gives us a fatal racetrack car crash in which a government agent is critically injured and uncovers an enemy brainwashing scheme, and another assumes his colleague's identity to expose the plot. Made in 1971, and originally scheduled for spring of 72, Hunter finally emerged after sitting on the shelf for almost two years. Uh, John Vernon... Um, most of us would know him as the principal from Animal House several years later, but he was the main character, uh, David Hunter, in this particular show. And what I remember the most about it was the role that the Wizard of Oz played in some sort of hypnotism or hallucination scene, Stop the Monkeys being the dominant plot point. And Hunter still stands probably as the made-for-TV movie that I most want to see again. January also brought Go Ask Alice. It felt almost like an after-school special. I believe it was uh, produced and made for primetime. It was an anti-drug kind of drama. Diary of a Teenage Drug Addict could have been its subscript, uh, starring, among other folks, William Shatner and Andy Griffith. But my favorite, probably made-for-TV movie of this entire year, my highlight outside of the TV series is Search and Circle of Fear, would have been A Cold Night's Death. This also was January, very late January. ABC Movie of the Week, starring Robert Culp and Eli Wallach, 
as uh, in what is described as a psychological horror tale in which two scientists who are snowbound in a mountaintop research station uh, believe they're dealing with an unknown, perhaps even supernatural force, and end up at each other's throats. It's an outstanding uh, film and hard to find. Obviously, these made-for-TV movies were, if you weren't made to become a successful long-running series, if it wasn't a pilot, for example, they were made for one or two showings and then done. And none of them have gotten any sort of restoration treatment. And I wouldn't suggest that made-for-TV movies like uh, Short Walk to Daylight, the original, or A Cold Night's Death deserve Criterion Collection treatment, but it would be awfully nice if an original master of some point could be released on some format. Seems like DVD would have been the ideal format for it, and maybe the ship has sailed here because for a Blu-ray format would be uh, almost overkill, therefore maybe inappropriate, therefore you'd wonder if it's going to happen. But to me, it probably should. And that made January on the made-for-TV movie front, because in addition to Hunter and Go Ask Alice and A Cold Night's Death, you had the introduction of the TV series Emergency. One of the recent purchases that I have made was a box set of the music of Julie London. Uh, Julie London was an actress and singer, and uh, her second husband, I believe, Bobby Troop, was a singer who was her producer uh, for really all of the hits that she recorded. Her previous husband was Jack Webb. We would know him as Sergeant uh, Friday from the Dragnet series. But he also was the producer of Emergency as a TV series and hired into that series both Julie London in a key role, a key central role as a nurse, and her husband Bobby uh, Troop as one of the actors. So there's an interesting sort of connection point there. Uh, I bought this music from you know, the 1950s and early 60s, that the liner notes kind of called out that sort of crucial uh, acting credit in Emergency. London, I think, has been quoted as viewing herself more as an actress than a singer, and I'm not sure that I would agree with that. I think there's a, there's good there on both sides. The month of February continued the supernatural vein. One of the movies, in fact, I think is probably top of my Netflix queue, because in addition to being Netflix streaming like almost everybody I know, we also still have a DVD account because there are some things which have never gone to streaming and may not. And it's so unusual for a made-for-TV movie to get any DVD treatment, even shoddy DVD releases. But the Norlis Tapes is available on DVD, and right now it's sitting as next up in my DVD queue. Uh, it starred Roy Thins and Angie Dickinson in a, uh, a kind of just another version of The Night Stalker would be. Um, described in this book that I'm using as a reference point, this was a pilot for a prospective news series. Didn't happen, so much like Hunter. A humorless investigative reporter is chasing down the supernatural and stumps, stumbles onto the walking dead and finds himself in the clutches of a demon spirit. Spooky, atmospheric, relying on traditional effects. So the special effects maybe hold up a little bit better here because it isn't trying to do anything too fancy that, of course, modern technology does even even better um, than we could have even imagined back then. I would have loved to have seen the series, let's put it that way. Isle of a Mystery was also one that I'm not sure wasn't intended to turn into some sort of uh, movie of the week series. This was an NBC show, both of them, Norless Tapes and Isle of a Mystery, NBC. I remember it from the cast. Every time I see the names uh, Ida Lupino and Jack Weston, I think of this show. And there are more than one movie out there under the heading of I Love a Mystery. 
This particular one aired originally in February of 1973, part of this 72-73 series. Then, as we move into the month of March, the $6 million man pilot... Whoa, should have name-dropped that one before now. Well, it didn't become a series in 72. It probably became a series the next year, 73 or 74. But the $6 million man pilot, that movie originally aired in March of that particular year. Also in March, NBC had a uh, version of The Red Pony, uh, sort of a family drama, sad family drama, as I recall it. Probably the first time I saw an interpretation of either Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn on television would have been also March of that year, CBS, production of Tom Sawyer, uh, covering a 90-minute runtime. So truncated, obviously, but not necessarily a bloated theatrical release either. Genesis 2 was also March of that year. One of these that was planned to be a series. Uh, Gene Roddenberry coming up with another sci-fi fantasy you know, collection of sorts. And it was clear when it was over that there should have been more episodes. More should have been done with this. For more of my point of view about Genesis 2, I'd refer people to the archives of Starbase 66 at simplysyndicated.com. Uh, Starbase 66 episode 91 was Roddenberry Pilots. And I speak my mind about not just Genesis 2, but other Roddenberry pilots uh, within the context of that program. April, wrapping up this made-for-TV movie series, uh, the season 72-73, just had The Man Without a Country in it. I've already said what little I remember in that episode from January of 2011. It was at least 90 minutes long, and it was a very literate retelling of a uh, from the novel by Edward Everett Hale. So there's a broad range of 1972-73. Probably the most important things that happened in that year was the same thing that was the most important to me every year, when a new TV season would be announced. When on Saturday morning am I going to find Johnny Quest? First and foremost. But I've since come to be a collector of some of these things, and all tying back to this this crucial starting point of 72-73. Search is one, Circle of Fear is another. But if I were given the opportunity to lay real money down and purchase a proper DVD version of some of these movies, Short Walk to Daylight, Hunter, A Cold Night's Death, I'm sure that I would do it. I would not mind at least an investigative look back to The Snoop Sisters with Helen Hayes or I Love a Mystery with Ida Lupino. I remember the idea of these shows. I don't remember the films themselves. And of course, what I do remember of shows like the Six Million Dollar Man, or even Emergency, comes from the later series and not from the shows themselves. So the movies, to me, are somewhat forgotten. But as I veer into my different drummer today, which I really wanted the different drummer to actually be some crucial figure from one of these particular TV shows or made-for-TV movies, it wasn't working. Instead, what I did was I went to probably the most important actor, for me, in the 1970s, as a kid watching movies made in the 70s and then broadcast either in reruns or in the Late Late Show in uh, mid-70s television. And it seems strange to talk about an actor with the range of Peter Cushing and the longevity of his career from just the point of view of the 1970s, but to be honest, that's how I came to know this incredible actor in genres like horror and sci-fi and fantasy. So it's already obvious that I'm planning to sell Peter Cushing short. (laughs) We'll just get that right out of the way. 
from an IMDb perspective, I intend to share things, and all of them are going to be from the 1970s. But it also makes sense to do a little bit biographically. So let's start there. Using Wikipedia as a reference, Peter Wilton Cushing, OBE, was an English actor and a BAFTA TV Award Best Actor winner in 1956. He is mainly known for his prolific appearances in Hammer films, in which he played strong character roles like the sinister scientist Baron Frankenstein, or Sherlock Holmes, or the vampire hunter Dr. Van Helsing, among his many roles. He frequently appeared opposite Christopher Lee and occasionally Vincent Price. A star on both sides of the Atlantic, Cushing's best-known roles outside of Hammer Productions include Grand Moff Tarkin in Star Wars, 1977, and Doctor Who in films made in 1965 and 1966 that don't necessarily look that much like the Doctor character that we know today. I haven't seen those two, although I do have one of them recorded to give me a sense of what Cushing was like in the role of the Doctor. No, I want to focus on nineteen on the 1970s, and it's fair to say that 1977, probably a good point to look at it from the perspective of that Trex and Sci-Fi episode, of course, 1977, chosen for a reason. When I was a kid, though, and looking at the 1972-1973 TV series, and what else would be showing in that time frame between September of 1972 and May of 1973, there would be reruns. Well, a lot of them would be reruns of B-movies. Movies that my parents probably wouldn't mind me seeing, even if they were uh, scary movies or horror movies, because they weren't the R-rated stuff that was coming out or would soon be coming out along the lines of Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist and stuff like that. So just focusing on Cushing alone as an actor and films that he played during this period that I would have seen on television, Scream and Scream Again, The House That Dripped Blood, Asylum, and The Creeping Flesh, those are the ones that come immediately to mind. I want to deal with a little bit more of the biography, talk about Cushing in the 70s and some of the things that will give us some insight into kind of the films that he was in and the films he chose to be in and what he was dealing with in his personal life then. Um, and then I want to dive into Scream and Scream Again, just a little bit as one example. Because of all the films that I've mentioned, he's probably in that one the least, and yet still made a lasting impression from what might be just described as a single scene in the film. But under the Wikipedia heading of personal life, says this. In 1971, Cushing withdrew from filming Blood from the Mummy's Tomb following the death of his wife, actress Violet Helene Beck, to whom he had been married since 1943. The following year, he was quoted in the Radio Times as having said, Since Helen passed on, I can't find anything. The heart, quite simply, has gone out of everything. Time is interminable. The loneliness is almost unbearable, and the only thing that keeps me going is the knowledge that my dear Helen and I will be reunited again someday. To join Helen is my only ambition. You have my permission to publish that, really. You know, dear boy, it's all just killing me. Please say that. Cushing, dignified. Even dignified in the midst of the the worst Hammer horror script you could possibly imagine. He was asked to do things for Hammer and later for Amicus that probably a lot of actors might have considered to be beneath them. But, you know, what? I saw a quote just in the last couple of weeks that I think probably would sum up Cushing's attitude as well as anything. If serving others is beneath you, then leadership is beyond you. He was a humble man. And uh, I love the fact that he was married all those years, uh, separated only by death, and 
occupied by his heartbreak at that death. But even then, very gut-wrenching, back to Wikipedia, in his autobiography, Cushing implies that he attempted suicide. He had experienced a nervous breakdown in previous years on the night of his wife's death by running up and down the stairs in the vain hope that it would induce a heart attack. He later stated that this had simply been a hysterical response born out of grief and that he had not purposely attempted to end his life. A poem left by Helen implored him not to die until he had lived life to the full, and he was resolved that to commit suicide would have meant letting her down. Although not conventionally religious, Cushing maintained a belief in both God and an afterlife. Cushing's colleagues of that period commented on his deep Christian faith and convictions that his separation from his wife was only temporary. The effects of his wife's death proved to be as much physical as mental. For his role in Dracula A.D. 1972, Cushing had originally been cast as the father of Stephanie Beecham's character, but he had aged so visibly and lost so much weight that the script was vastly rewritten to make him her grandfather. It was done in the last of the Dracula films from, Hor from Hammer as well, The Satanic Rites of Dracula. In a silent tribute to Helen, a shot of Van Helsing's desk includes a photograph of her. He repeated the role of the man who lost family in other horror films during this time, among them Asylum, The Creeping Flesh, and The Ghoul. So his uh, immediate aging, his mental state at the, the death of his, his wife, kind of reminds me of, thing, of something I've seen as a pattern. Whenever I have uh, friends, family members, acquaintances, where the couple has been together for that long and the marriage at least seemingly that happy, I always get a little bit worried when something happens and you suddenly find out that one of the one of the spouses is either uh, dead or uh, is about to die, sort of in that hospice mode. I begin to get very worried about the survival of the other spouse. How will they do? How will they last? Because it's not that unusual to see the span of time between the death of one spouse and the death of the other being measured in days, uh, not in years, uh, as was the case with Cushing, managing to push forward for years. And it is true that in Asylum, an anthology movie series, he does play a man stricken with grief, I believe, over the death of a son, and trying to find a way to deal with that, and of course dealing with it in typical horror movie tropes. The Creeping Death, uh, cited as another example, that was one that I would have seen back in this 1972-73 period, I'm sure. A Peter Cushing film that was fairly recent at the time. The other film I've mentioned in this series is The House That Dripped Blood. That one also, a horror anthology film, and also a man struggling to deal with the death of, of a spouse. This, of course, you know, shot maybe right around the time that his wife's health was failing or shortly after her death. But the one I want to jump in and focus on is Scream and Scream Again, and I do so acknowledging that Cushing, while hardly in the film, cast a big shadow even when he really wasn't in the on the screen that often. The trivia section for IMDb says this, Although the publicity for the film made much of the fact that the three greatest horror stars of the day, Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, and Peter Cushing, were all in it, the three actors have in fact only small roles in the film, despite star billing. Peter Cushing's role is confined to one scene, without the other two. Price and Lee characters have one very brief scene together, and only at the very end of the film. And the combined footage for all three actors only comes to about one-fifth of the film's total running time. As I recall, uh, Vincent Price has most of those scenes, if you were to tally them up. But if you'd asked me, coming into this, 
maybe I will only want to name one of these three greats as a different drummer. That's probably not true. Wouldn't shock me if eventually I do get to all three. But the one that is first and foremost for me, Peter Cushing. I don't know what that says about me. Does it mean that when I'm watching one of these sort of classic Corman slash Hammer slash Amicus horror films, I'm more likely to put myself in the shoes of the vampire hunter than the vampire, or Dr. Frankenstein rather than the creature. I don't know. Or it might just be an indication that there was something about Peter Cushing that I found incredibly comforting, even true in roles where he was playing a villain. For me, Star Wars 1977 worked so well for two reasons. One was on the good guy side of the ledger, the appearance of Alec Guinness. But more importantly, on the bad guy side of the ledger, the appearance of Peter Cushing. We don't really watch television the way we used to. We now have the ability, at the very beginning of a new show, to sit if we want to and watch over several hours every single one of those new episodes back to back to back. It didn't used to be that way. It used to be that the networks controlled everything, and if you wanted to find out what was coming your way in a new TV series, a publication like TV Guide was actually invaluable. It was how you were going to find the shows, because if you didn't find them, you weren't going to be able to watch them. Maybe not later. Maybe in the case of shows like Search and Circle of Fear, maybe not ever. You know, I may be the owner of those things on DVD for a reason. It's highly unlikely I would stumble across them in any other way, even if there was a network devoted to nothing more than nostalgia over lost TV series. How long would it take to get to shows like that? And in many cases, it's a rarity. It's a rare find indeed to be watching television, whether it's cable or broadcast TV in a late night, overnight kind of a time slot, to accidentally stumble across these Peter Cushing movies, like Asylum, or The Creeping Flesh, or The House That Dripped Blood, or Scream and Scream Again. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. All of the episodes that have ever been recorded for both Inappropriate Conversations as a podcast and Walk the Earth are available at inappropriateconversations.org. Inappropriate Conversations is available on Facebook. There's a page there as a cause. I also interact on Twitter. I'm IC underscore Greg. In addition to uh, regular podcatchers like iTunes, Inappropriate Conversations is available on Stitcher. And I am still in the process of posting bits and clips and hints of all of the past Inappropriate Conversations shows as Inappropriate Conversation clips via SoundCloud. Like everywhere else, I'm IC underscore Greg on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
This show is a proud member of the Pride 48 Podcasting Network. Check out other great podcasts at pride48.com slash shows.